Is depression funny? <laughs> Everything is funny. Doc says there's something wrong with me. I got a sadness I can't shake now. Is there something I can't take now? It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe. On this program, we talk to funny, creative people who have firsthand experience with depression. Because having a sense of humor and having depression are not mutually exclusive. They go together, like peanut butter and depression. I'm realizing how biased and traditional I've been because I was always like looking for guests who are stand-ups or who are actors. And then I like, what about the people with millions of subscribers on YouTube who are very <laughs> funny? Why am I being a snob to this entire medium? Oh, don't worry. It's a it's 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 not just you. And frankly, I'm a snob <laughs> about the medium too. I'm a snob about all mediums. Let's just say we're discerning. Our guest this week joined us from a warm and pleasant place, mentally and geographically. Hi, I'm Hannah Hart, and I am in Los Angeles, city of angels, sunny all the time, beautiful place. You only know it's winter because the Starbucks cups have changed colors. Hannah Hart is a New York Times bestselling memoirist, and she has over two and a half million subscribers to her YouTube channel. I asked Hannah how she describes what she does for a job. You know, usually when people ask me what I do for a living, I say something like, oh, I'm a video editor. I edit. Uh, depending on how much of a conversation I want to get in with this person, uh -huh. because to describe what I do is, um, it's, I guess, multifaceted. Like, I, I like to say I am a small business owner and the business I produce is entertainment. And the entertainment is her, sometimes with her friends, talking, joking around, sometimes being serious and giving advice. Hannah is best known for her series, My Drunk Kitchen, where she gets steadily more drunk as she cooks, not always successfully. Hannah is one of the breakout stars of YouTube. Here's a recent video of Hannah in action. Eight things I love about growing up. Number one, go to bed whenever you want, which is usually pretty early. Like, let's say 9.30? Ah, time for another restful night of thinking about the void. She's been doing this about six years. Of course, just because someone is confident and seems happy doesn't mean they don't struggle with depression. And just because they're a success doesn't mean things have always been great. Hannah grew up in San Mateo, California, Bay Area, and she had to grow up fast. You know, I, I had no aspirations in entertainment, um, but not because I had any lack of respect for the profession. It's the exact opposite in that I was too intimidated. Um, and also I had a lot of practical responsibilities in my life. So I didn't want to go after something that didn't seem like a guarantee. And the people who are brave enough to aspire to work in the creative fields, like those are people that are really putting a lot at stake. Um, and I, I, I didn't feel that way. Responsibilities. What kind of responsibilities? Well, I needed to make money. <laughs> As a kid? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I got my first job when I was 14. Um, yeah. No, I was kind of like a, the, the teeny tiny head of household in my family. Why is that? Um, we just have had a lot of, you know, my, my mom is a single mom um, who unfortunately uh, suffered from some undiagnosed mental illnesses. In Hannah's memoir, Buffering, Unshared Tales of a Life Fully Loaded. 
She talks about life with a mom who suffered from psychosis, and she's described her home situation as loving but difficult. She did her best to keep us in the Bay Area, which made us uh, really scrap for cash a lot of the time because we were trying to, you know, keep a home in the Bay Area as pricing and everything went up, 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 up. Um, So, yeah, I guess I just always was a very grounded child, you know. Uh, My therapist likes to say parentalized at an early age. Uh, But, yeah, I just... um, There was not a lot of, like, wonder, I guess, you know, about, like, life and how to live. I wasn't much of a dreamer. I really wasn't a dreamer. You had to get down to business. Yeah. Were you the—were there siblings? Yeah, an older—I have an older sister and a younger sister. So you have an older sibling, but you were the de facto mom in the group? Yeah, pretty much. My older sister is amazing, and if anything, like, she is is the dreamer, and— in our family and was just totally my, I idolized her as a kid. And I still do as an adult. I think, I think she's great. But yeah, there were a lot of the responsibilities fell to me. And then uh, where was your dad in the picture? Mm, across the bay. They got divorced early on, like early, early on. He's a Jehovah's Witness, so we don't talk much. And you lived full time with your mom then? Yeah, I visited him a couple, like a couple days a month. Wasn't really a leave it to beaver family situation. But if it's what you grow up in, it feels normal enough. At least it makes sense. It's only when you get older that you start to see uh, all the other family archetypes that are in place and how other people do being alive. Um, but there was a lot of love in our house. And we, you know, there's, I think that's something that um, I really value is the fact that despite the amount of responsibility I had, I never, and despite the ways in which we were neglected, I knew my mom, like, believed in me. You know what I mean? So I think it, the, subse- the consequence of that was I was a fairly confident person, you know? Um, but, yeah, we didn't, we didn't have the things that we needed. But, so that was difficult, yeah. Like what things? Like food. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. I played this game at school called Will She Eat It? Uh, and, and all through elementary school, my strategy for getting food was uh, I made up this game at lunchtime where people, you know, if because kids were always discarding stuff, right? So it's like kids are like, oh, I hate Fig Newtons, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and so I made up this game called oh, Will She Eat It? Where I'd be like, let's take um, that Fig Newton and put on what? Ketchup? <laughs> okay, this is crazy, guys. Will she eat it? And the answer was yes. <laughs> because that was how you got enough food to get through your day. Yeah. Again, this just felt like this is a thing I got to do, not I am a neglected child. No, I don't think anybody presumes. I don't think anybody thinks that way. I mean, I think that like, you know, these words and terms that we use as adults to reflect on our childhood are only things that we're capable of accepting because we're able to process them. But in the midst of these events and in the midst of your life, you're not thinking of it in reflection, you know? And so the during that time in my life, no, I've just I was just Hannah. Just this is Han- this is my life. And it's, you know, it's life. Hannah says the beginning of her experience with depression is hard to pin down. It wasn't until years later that she started to look back and spot some clues. I would spend a lot of time as a latchkey kid, like alone in, in my house, you know? And as a child you know, who also, I also have ADHD, um, which I also didn't find out till I was like 27. And I was like, wait, so I'm not a failure. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) the, yeah. um, So for that, you know, having a a child with 
a need for stimulation, curiosity, but also being confined to a home. Like you have to stay inside. Right. Because it's not safe out there. I think that like that is when I just started shutting off, you know, like I would literally like in the summertime was the worst because it was so hot in there. We didn't have AC or anything. And cable was, you know, not cable, but like the TV, eh, iffy, right? Um, and I just would lay and stare and just lay and stare and lay and stare. And so I might have probably, I might have been depressed as a kid, but I I was just very, very bored and numb. And I didn't realize that this, this fog feeling was called depression uh, until pretty recently, like the last year and a half, two years, maybe. Wow. Oh, yeah. I just started taking antidepressants for the last year and a half. She grows up and she thrives. Doesn't just graduate high school. She does well enough to get into UC Berkeley. And she shows up on campus there with a cross on a necklace and a dedication to Christianity. So my dad's a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and he, so they, they have very fundamental Christian values. Uh, and, you know, and I also, I have a lot of love in my heart for my dad too, you know, and despite the fact that our worlds can't align in the way that, you know, a parent-child relationship would, I still objectively, I'm like, yeah, he's a decent, you know, he's a good guy. He's an interesting guy, you know? Um, so, yeah, so in college, I, uh, I went to UC Berkeley. I was very, very proud of getting into that. I still am to this day. Um, it was my reach school, and so I was shocked when I got in. And I was <laughs> very adamant about going into the straight edge dorms, um, like no drinking, no smoking, et cetera. Substance and obviously free. Yeah. substance free, right? And we were all under 21. So in theory, wouldn't it all be substance free? <laughs> uh, but at, at my age of 17, I had already been drunk and high a bunch. And I thought to myself, okay, Hannah, God has given you this gift, this blessing, because of course I couldn't have possibly earned it on my own. Like this was God giving me an opportunity. Right. Uh, I must be as clean as I could possibly be. So I'm going to live in the straight edge dorms so I don't get tempted by anything. And I'm going to start going to like Christian group camp, church things and try and find a husband. Spoiler alert, totally gay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. She also packed her latent suppressed homosexuality. You know, it's so funny because I think of myself as that 17 year old freshman who had just really earned what I had. And I'm like, I look at that 17-year-old self and I'm like, good job, dude. But when I think about my perspective at 17, I just felt guilt and like debt. I felt like I had to be worthy of this somehow. And I wasn't. So, I, you know, you talk about God when you, when you were talking about that. Like, so this must be a gift that was handed to you by a generous, benevolent God. But it, it also sounds like depressive thinking to me. Because it's like, well, you know, I've stumbled into this, clearly an imposter, um, mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, clearly I don't belong here and I didn't get here on my merits. Like, that's a low opinion of yourself going mm -hmm. in there. So I must suffer for it. Right. So I have to, because, of course, what God wants is for me to suffer. Right. <laughs> and, and, and wear a cross <laughs> around your neck while you do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. D yeah. It probably was really depressive thinking because it was definitely um, just... And I still struggle with this to this day, but like this idea of self-worth, an inherent sense 
of worth. And I wonder, does anyone feel that? Does anyone feel like they're worth anything? Do people feel that way? <laughs> You're asking the wrong kind of host right now. Yeah. <laughs> You're asking the depression host. Go, I'll, I'll try to hook you up with the optimistic everything's going fine podcast. Should one ever exist? Yeah, right. But is it optimism? But is self-worth even optimism? I think it's just this inherent sense of like, oh, no, I am worthy of my feelings. And if that is depressive thinking, then I, I it brings me kind of a sense of joy that other people might not feel that way about themselves. I've kind of come up with the idea that, yeah, I'm a fraud, but they haven't caught me yet. So they're probably not going to get around to it. I must be way down the docket or I'm really good at hiding one way or another. I'm not going to I'm not going to look out the window. <laughs> well, OK. How about this as an alternate perspective? Um, how arrogant of me to think that they don't know what they're talking about. Right. Oh, that's good. You know, yeah. there's another self-flagellating way of <laughs> thinking like, oh, good. You know how ar- like, you know, it's like even my doubt of their you know, praise is arrogant. Yeah. Or how about this? Uh, how arrogant of me to think that the people who bust down the door and say you're a fraud would even bother spending their time busting down my door. Don't they have more important Whoa. doors to bust down? Oh, man, dude, that's dark. That's dark, man. That's dark. <laughs> we're, it's like we're playing Jenga with our own feelings. Yeah. College or whatever you do in early adulthood is a time of figuring out who you are. And in terms of her sexuality, Hannah describes that time as being like shadow boxing. The idea of shadow boxing, which is that you're practicing for a fight by boxing against your own shadow, right? Um, and there's also a great Fiona Apple song called Shadow Boxer, also very inspiring. And But it's this idea that there was something I could see that was an invisible, an opponent visible only to me. It was an invisible opponent that I was constantly ducking around in my head. Like I had this feeling and of otherness. But again, a child from a, um, what do they call it? What do they, what do they use? Adverse childhood, whatever. Like a child from on these circumstances, I could psychoanalyze myself out of being gay so many different ways. I was like, you're not gay. You're just traumatized. You're not gay. You just have daddy issues. You're not gay. You just have mommy issues. You're not gay. You just grew up in San Mateo. You're not, you know, like I, I was really trying not to be gay because I could not have one other thing that had happened in my life. I was already an emancipated minor. I was already someone who, you know, was being lauded as like this survivor hero person. I already was trying to have any relationship with my conservative father. I couldn't be gay. I was like, come on, Hannah, please don't be gay. That kind of thinking. So was the shadow that you were boxing, was was the shadow lesbian Hannah boxing you? I guess the shadow was just gayness, yeah, just gayness being gay. Itself. It's just self. Yeah, <laughs> the shadow was myself, yeah, okay. 100%. <laughs> and the shadow eventually scored a knockout in that particular boxing match. There you go. So when you were going around uh, in college and kind of carrying this false idea of, of who you were supposed to be or who you are or who you could change yourself into, when that started to fall away— um, did it all kind of fall away at once? Did did a did the uh, kind of crust break open and the new Hannah emerge like a butterfly? God, I wish. No, not at all. I would say that like <laughs> I am just like entering my butterfly years now, okay. ten years later. Um, no, it was really 
difficult. It was really bad. It was it was connected to everything. Um, so basically, you know, what was so important about not being gay to me was faith, was being able to still be a Christian. I mean, I would like read the Bible at night. Like I was looking for some liberal, you know, Christian theological place that I could worship. You know, I was like, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus and I believe in religion, not religion like in that way, but in religion, like um, I believe in in this this practice of living. You know, mm-hmm. I can, I, I'm not orthodox. I'm not taking it all literally, but I can see the Christian ideals, et cetera. Um, so I was a really progressive Christian, but I couldn't be gay, right? Because that would shatter my my Christianity. Uh, and then I fell in love my spring, fall semester of my sophomore year. I met someone and spring semester, I had a relationship with that person. It was a woman. And my mantra to myself was, it's not girl. It's not girls. It's girl. It's just this one person I have these feelings for. I mean, is it even really sex that we're doing? Spoiler alert. Yes. Cause I didn't want to fornicate quote unquote, because oh. I was saving it for marriage. No, I just didn't want to have sex with a man. I was just like, oops, saving it for marriage. <laughs> Not that I am just so disinterested. Um, and I was also teaching her about Christianity, you know, and I was like, you should really explore faith. She breaks up with me right before I go to Japan uh, for study abroad. Oof. And in Japan, everything fell apart for me. That was, I think, the first time, and again, I didn't have the word depression, but that was my most severe depression. I've heard this a lot from other people we've had on the show. You get dumped and it's devastating. And, and this is important, it's more devastating than it is for people who've never been depressed. I mean, anyone would be sad or heartbroken, but if you deal with depression, it can shatter you, and for such a long time. So Hannah had that, Plus, she was a Pacific Ocean away from home. I couldn't eat. I lost, like, literally 15 to 20 pounds. Um, And I'm someone who is just, you know, for some frame of reference, like, I'm 5'4". So to lose that much weight was a lot of weight. You know, there's not a lot to work with. Uh, I couldn't complete any of my assignments, which was fine because I could talk my way out of them. Um, I didn't want to participate in most of the activities, I felt just completely, despite still being a fun, positive, charming person, the second I was alone, I was completely dissociated from myself. I was just so blank. And what began in Japan is something that, it's when my faith really started to shatter and the concept of like oblivion and mortality came in. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the amount of heartbreak I had felt over losing this person who I had loved and trusted, and it's all, I'm sure, related to, like, the family unit and the nature of intimacy, et cetera, et cetera. Having that ripped away from me and having this aspect of my identity now undeniable, it, 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 fractured, it fractured my faith to the point of breaking. And that was terrifying for me. That was really, really hard. Well, it seems like you just— you keep losing your foundations. You know, you have yeah. this this faith that's supposed to be the bedrock of everything, and that's going to save you from being ostracized, you know, and it's going to save you from being gay. But then you're gay, and you, you have this relationship, and then you lose faith, and then you lose the partner who kind of 
brought you into an awareness of of who you were mm-hmm. as a gay woman. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know how you don't know how sad you were until you're happy? Uh-huh. It's like, I didn't realize how much I wasn't in love until I fell in love. Mm. You know, and and having that best friend, that person in my life, that that fan, that new family, that found family, that whole thing, it was so important to me and also completely codependent and totally unhealthy and very <laughs> toxic. Uh, you know, and all those great things that I know now as an adult, but it was it was so it was so crucial to me. And then just to like you said, like have that foundation taken away every every time was very jarring. And I was in Japan. Oh, my God. And not only that, I was living in the countryside of Japan. There was not a movie theater. It was oh. like the countryside. I mean, living in the countryside of America would be jarring for anyone who comes from an urban area, right? Yeah, like, yeah. or even a suburban area. We were in the countryside. There were rice patties. Like, that. <laughs> it was It was nuts. Hannah was still years away from being diagnosed as depressed and years away from getting on meds for her depression. But when she thinks about that time in life now, she recognizes brain chemistry at work. Being in a relationship was like taking an antidepressant. It was like I was getting an extra serotonin boost every day and I was more functional. I was happy, you know, happy, but like not constantly happy, obviously, but like more functional, more eager to start every day, thinking about my future, thinking ahead, planning things, just more present in my life because I was literally getting this dopamine boost from being in love. Now, of course, that's not lasting. And even if we had stayed together, that chemical boost would have run out. But I think that to have that taken away, to have my to have my antidepressant take away, taken away was... I mean, that was really rupturing. It really was just, you know, it, I, I want to return to the to the the loss of faith because I want to explain that when you're someone who has used the idea of a conscious God and a timeline that the Bible presents and the the apocalypse and resurrection, et cetera, et cetera, it gives purpose to suffering. And I was someone who had so much purposeless suffering that once that faith was taken away, it was just life sucks, then you die. Hannah finishes in Japan, gets through college, moves away from the church, gets more comfortable with the fact that she's gay. I worked like three jobs. I got two degrees. It's funny because when I look back on it again through my little like brain lens, I'm like, what was I even doing? Such a lazy kid. But then, in reality, I got two degrees and had three jobs. From Berkeley. From Berkeley, yeah. And I'm like, but at the same time, in my narrative, in my mind, I can't see that. I can't, I don't know, I can't feel it. You know what I mean? I'm just like, yep. Even now? Even now. I want to give myself credit. I really do. But I guess that, like, in my evolution as a as a person, I've only just now forgiven my elementary school self. I haven't gotten to middle school yet. You know, I mean, I haven't <laughs> I haven't gotten there in my in my therapizing. <laughs> to an untrained ear, to an ear that's never been depressed, to a normie's ear, this all sounds ridiculous because Hannah obviously knows what she overcame to accomplish all that she did. But depression robs you of thinking well of yourself and then you can't be proud of yourself. And it is ridiculous, but it happens and it keeps happening. 
Buffering became a New York Times bestseller, and that was obviously an amazing accomplishment. And after I knew that this would happen, and I had prepped for it because this happens every time I get, you know, something done. Um, Have you ever heard that song by Peggy Lee called Is That All There Is? Oh, yes. Is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is to a fire? Yeah. (laughs) I remember when I was a little girl, our house caught on fire. I'll never forget the look on my father's face as he gathered me up in his arms and raced to the burning building out of the pavement. And I stood there, shivering in my pajamas, and watched the whole world go up in flames. And when it was all over, I said to myself, Is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. I get very, is that all there is to a fire? And it makes me sad because in the moments of celebration, I, I'm not there. Yeah. You know? I often feel like it's a, it's like a price that you paid. It's like a, Robert Johnson selling his soul to the devil to learn to play guitar kind of thing, where it's like, I will give you national exposure. I will give you people knowing your name. I'll give you a good living. The price I ask is that you not be able to enjoy fucking any of it. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's like, I want, I want to feel proud of myself more than anything else. I want to feel like I can trust myself. I want to feel positive about myself. You know, it's real. And like, unfortunately, there is no amount of subscribers or bestsellers or, you know, uh, I got an award from GLAAD, uh, the Valentini Award, which is like, you know, this great prestigious GLAAD Award. And it's all really wonderful. And I feel almost like I'm disrespecting the accolades themselves by not being like, and now I am complete. <laughs> you know what I mean? If that's all there is. There's Miss Peggy Lee. Ah, that song. So over the top, absurd, but also sincere and weird and moving. Coming up, what do you do with two Berkeley degrees, depression, and time on your hands? Well, you get drunk, make grilled cheese, and become a star. Sure. And then one day, he went away. And I thought I'd die, but I didn't. And when I didn't, I said to myself, is that all there is to love? The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illness, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having some laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with depression, maybe demystifying depression a little bit, making it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves, this is a serious disease. The good news, people can and do get better. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. 
It can be an awkward conversation, but makeitokay.org is full of information you can use, like what to say, what not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, or other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org. You can take the pledge right there to Make It Okay. Thanks so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. Hey, we'll get back to the show in just a minute. But first, so many of you stepped up and donated in December during our fundraising campaign. We love hearing from you. We're so honored that you believe in us and you want to be a part of the show. You are helping bring more of the show you love into your headphones or your car stereo system or your smart speaker, however you listen. If you want to donate, you still absolutely can and pick up our unexpectedly hugely popular logo pillbox or coffee mug. That's at hilariousworld.org. Thank you so much. In fact, let me thank one of you directly. I'm going to call Sarah Hartley here. Hello, this is Sarah. Hey, Sarah, it's John Moe. Hi. Oh, this is so cool. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks. Um, We're just calling to thank you so much for your contribution and for helping us make our show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was happy to give. So why did you give to the show? I had been kind of struggling with just not feeling like myself for a couple of years. My attitude was poor and I my energy was low. And when I didn't know what was going on, I was just kind of in a funk for, for a couple of years. Um, one day as I was leaving work, I was looking at kind of the top-rated comedy podcast, and I came across the hilarious world of depression, and I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give this a shot. And then um, just that, that first episode resonated with me so much, kind of covering up um, anxiety and sort of self-doubt with um, high achievement. Mm-hmm. Peter um, Sagal. So Peter Sagal, yep. Um, and then I decided I really want to talk to a psychiatrist about this and, and get this sorted out. So I made an appointment the next week. Well, the the campaign was just astonishingly successful. We had we had such success with it. We had such a a great outpouring from listeners like you, um, and it's uh, paved the way for a very very bright future for the show. And we're going to take a rest, and then we're going to gear up for season three. Wonderful. Oh, that's so cool. Thanks a lot, Sarah. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. Number four. You have total romantic freedom. You can date whoever you want. Scoop up, puppy, peep, poop. Hello, dating person? Quick question. Do you like magazines? Because I'm bringing a lot of issues. (laughs) Hello? Number five. Number five. After you're 21, or whatever legal drinking age is the age in your country, you can buy whatever booze you want. Akashi, this is a Japanese whiskey. Looks cool. Tastes like burning. Number six. When you grow up, you basically have two friend groups. How many fingers was I doing? When you grow up, you basically have two friend groups. Your best friends. Hey dude, there's something weird on my butt. Incoming pick. Make sure you are solo. Sent. And then, everybody else that you vaguely know. That's Hannah Hart listing the best things about being a grown-up on her YouTube channel, My Harto. So we cut to a few years after college, and Hannah is living in New York, hoping to get into writing or publishing, and she's talking to her ex-roommate back in the Bay Area. And she's like, man, dude, I miss when you would, like, get drunk and cook, man. And I was like, dude, I will get drunk and cook for you right now. 
And so I opened up Photo Booth and recorded a silly video for like 45 minutes, then put it into iMovie, chopped it up, and sent it to her via YouTube, which, as far as I was concerned, in March of 2011, was the platform through which you shared videos with your friends. This is from that video. She's trying, I think, to make a grilled cheese sandwich. It's important for you to remember, when cooking, to use food. Always use a butter knife for everything. Don't fucking hurt yourself. Let's talk about the benefits of grilled cheese. Um, one, delicious. Number two, easy to eat. Okay, number two, easy to make. (laughs) The video got around and it really caught on. You know, it was interesting because my friend shared it to Facebook and then it was like everyone in my life decided that they wanted this video to go viral because everyone shared it and shared it and shared it. And they were like, this is really funny. You should do entertainment stuff, Hannah. I was like, yeah, well, you know, don't we all wish we could? I just want to write a book one day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, I think it was really kind of this push from my core group of people, or not core, but my, my then community that shared it enough times. And yeah, it went viral. And it was really cool because... It kind of gave me a way to exercise this muscle or satisfy this urge that I'd had to entertain and to perform um, without any gatekeeping and without any objective, you know? You were just making something you wanted to see. Yeah. And at most, I was like, wow, if this YouTube thing works, maybe someone will publish a book one day of mine. Then I posted a third video, which was supposed to be the last video I'd ever post because I was afraid about my resume, my career. You know, it was getting kind of like if you type in Hannah Hart, is it going to say my drunk kitchen? I how am I ever going to get a job? Um, And so I actually filmed the third video. I'm going to let you finish. That's what it's called. It's about making an omelet. Some people like to only have egg whites in their omelets, and that's a good way to make your omelet shitty. Okay, so we need a pan. This one's rough. I have a freckle in my eye. Can you see it? The intention was that was going to be the final one, and I just, I couldn't do, do it. I just was like, I don't want this to end. Hannah still makes My Drunk Kitchen videos. The latest is about making a Martha Stewart stuffing recipe, but adding Cheetos. They're fun. But Hannah is aware that alcohol is a depressant, and she knows what it can do. I think about it, because I've had family members who are alcoholics. I've had friends who are alcoholics. I've seen alcohol destroy people's bodies, their minds, and their lives. Um, It is the most accessible drug we have in America, and people abuse it constantly. Um, And so I guess that the way I operate is by living a healthy lifestyle. I mean, you know, like, I I can't, you know, it's difficult because there are going to be people that will use and abuse anything you do. Your words, your actions, they'll take something and run with it. But you, can, I'm not responsible for the decisions that other people make. I am responsible for the life I live as a role model. So if I ever felt like I was beca- beginning to have alcoholic tendencies, I would take care of myself. 
After the omelet episode, Hannah started making more types of videos, advice videos, stuff about cats, music videos. Here's one she did with Andrew Huang about food. It's called Where My Nom's At. Let's have a food fight. It's Morsel Combat. I see your cream pie on a plate and raise you a straw hat. I'm like a wombat, just want to get all fat. So if you want that, show me where your nom's at. Show me where your nom's at. Where your nom's at. Show me where your nom's at. Where your nom's at. Show me where your Like, I just started collaborating with other creators. I just gave myself permission, like, yeah, sure, people like my drunk kitchen, but what, are you going to make one joke forever? You're already bored of it. <laughs> Well, then, um, how did that track? You, you talk about eventually realizing that uh, th- these things that had been happening, staring up at the ceiling when you were a kid or fall- dissociating when you were in Japan, that, th- that these were depression. When did that uh, kind of truth and that name for what was going on enter your life? Eh, probably this podcast, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. Um, no, I uh, went to a therapist. So I've got, you know, I've gotten in and out of therapy you know, therapy, it's hard, right? It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like dating, which is when it's fine, it's fine. When it's good, it's good. But when it's great, when it's right, it's life changing, mm. you know? Um, and so I got in and out of therapy for, for years and years. And only very recently, um, when I was 29, I started seeing this one CBT specialist therapist who uh, just really has helped me so much. CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. It's all about reprogramming the thinking patterns that lead to problems. So your brain doesn't automatically turn any setback that you face into you feeling like you're a doomed failure. Or so you can avoid black and white thinking or always blaming someone. And, you know, for my uh, super bill, for my insurance, um, she was like, oh, I have to put a diagnosis on your super bill so that you can get reimbursed. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. And she's like, great. She's like, did you see what I wrote for it? And I was like, I, I honestly, I didn't look. I just forwarded it to my insurance, but um, whatever's fine, you know, whatever, you know. <laughs> and then she was like, okay, cool. Well, I think you should know. Uh, I just, I put major depressive disorder and PTSD. And I was like, I was like, PTSD, I could have guessed, but you think I'm depressed? And she was like, you, what do you think depression means? You know, like yeah, that. <laughs> and, yeah. like, and I just had never realized that I just had no idea. I had no idea. Huh. You know? I just thought I was in a constant, I just thought it was an existential, existential woe is what I call it. Existential? Whoa. Hannah deals with mental illness and makes these videos starring and often about herself, which might seem like a really vulnerable spot to be in. But she has a keen awareness of how she chooses to present herself. I don't think of it like, I just, the best thing to do is to be the most honest self. Yes, but you also, 100% of your honesty isn't 100% useful to people all the time. If I tweeted every depressive thought I had, that would be so Mm self-indulgent, you know? Like, what? You know, so it's like, it's, it is the work I do. And I'm very, very blessed in that this is the career I have. Um, But it's not, you know, in, in a weird way, I'm, and I don't know if it's like, I don't know if it's like I'm, a, I'm, I'm an absolutist, but I always think of what the designated purpose behind every single thing is. And I know, and, and, and that's something I'm trying to let go of. I'm actually trying to have a little bit more freedom with myself, you know? Give yourself a little more room. 
Yeah, man. Like, I just need to give myself a little more room. I can't be so, like, I can't watch the numbers. I can't get into that headspace because it's really toxic for me. It does not make me a better creator. It makes me a worse creator. Yeah. It makes me, yeah, it's like a um, head full of doubt. In February of 2017, Hannah released a video called Depression in Under Two Minutes. And it's not funny at all. I would say out of the 30 days in the month, I've got 10 days in full, beautiful surround sound and color. You know, I've got 10 days like today. I've got 10 days where there's no fog, you know? Where you're 100%. Yeah, where I'm 100%, you know? Or just like everything has color and touch and taste and feel and doesn't mean I'm happy. I mean, bad things can happen during this time. Like you can get in fights with people, et cetera, but it means I'm not depressed. I would say I have 10 days where I don't feel depression a month. And I was practicing my techniques of like, okay, I'm accepting how I feel. I'm not judging myself. If I feel like I'm at 20% capacity, I'm going to give myself 20% capacity goals, you know? So what's, what's the, if there was one thing you could do today, what would it be? The video is Hannah trying to do things like get out of bed, stay out of bed. She never speaks, and there's almost no sound aside from when she manages to drink some water or run the shower. Or brush her teeth. In the end, she manages to go for a walk, which feels like a triumph. And she makes the video. And I was like, I don't know, shower? And I was like, okay, just take a shower. I was like, okay, I took a shower. There was one other thing I could do. What would it be? And I was like, I just want to, like, tell somebody what this feels like. You know, and then it just kind of evolved from there. It was like, it was really just a letter to myself. Um, and I just gave myself permission to share it. The depression video will never get as many views as Hannah gets for being funny and or drunk and cooking. But it's really good. It feels more real about depression than those TV commercials where a lady is dressed in drab colors while her daughter plays nearby wondering what's going on. Are you hopeful about the future? Like, what do you think the future of your mental health will be? What do you want it to be? I don't know. I don't like to think about the future. <laughs> I really don't. I just, uh, I am really working on being kind to myself every day. And that's like all I'm working on right now is like, okay, treat yourself with a little compassion, little kindness, you know, like let's, let's stay in that space. Um, there was an amazing, uh, amazing, amazing genetics test I took called GeneSight, GeneSight. And it's a swab test and it tells you how medications affect your body. And so it breaks down into three categories. One, not effective, meaning you can take as much of it as you want and you're not going to feel anything. Two, or you're not going to feel the results that they say you'll feel. You might feel sedated, but you might not feel happy, you know? Um, not even happy, just not depressed. Um, <clears throat> two, the second category is moderate effect, meaning this will only work if you take double the dose. Mm -hmm. Or three, use as directed. So I, before I took this gene site test, I was on 300 milligrams of Wellbutrin. 
and I was on 300 milligrams of Melbutrin every day. And I was like, wow, I can't believe how severe my depression is. This 300 milligrams really doesn't feel that strong. Then we did the genes. My doctor and I did the gene site test. It turned out Welbutrin was in my moderate effect, my second tier. Um, but something called Zoloft was in my uses directed tier. Mm. And I am on 50 milligrams of Zoloft, and it's great. Good. And 50 is nothing. And then when I get into my downswings, I up it to 100. If it's like a downswing plus a crisis, I can do 150. You know, it's like it just depends. What do you know now about mental health that you wish you knew a long time ago? Any of the tools that are that I use every day. Any tools. Anything. You wish you had those tools before. I wish I had known tools existed, yeah. <laughs> what are your tools? Uh, like I said, like being able to pinpoint, okay, tracking my days of the month, tracking um, my own reactions throughout the day, uh, knowing what time of day, 5.30 p.m. every single day is really bad for me. Like, I, I, I don't know if it's like medication wearing off. I don't know if it's like sundowning. I don't know. There's something about 5.30 that I get this anxiety sadness. Hmm. You know, and it just kind of sits in my body. Um, so I able to realize, like to be able to look at the clock and be like, ah, it's that time of day. It's not that I hate this person. Right. It's just, you know, it doesn't. Being able to discern between feelings and facts, I think, is really crucial. I'm not morally flawed. There's something going on with yes. the Yes. It's such a forgiveness in any way. Like when I wake up and I'm just like, pointlessness, pointlessness, purposeless, purposeless, pointlessness. And I just have this already running narrative to be able to think, okay, Hannah, that's your depression talking, not you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If, even if I only get to be me 10 days a month, at least I know what me looks like. Hannah Hart is the author of two books, Buffering, Unshared Tales of a Life Fully Loaded, and My Drunk Kitchen, A Guide to Eating, Drinking, and Going with Your Gut. You can buy them where you buy books. And you can't buy them where it's impossible to buy books, because they're books. The Hilarious World of Depression is produced by American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Kate Moose is executive producer. Recording engineers this time around, Daniel Ramirez and Veronica Rodriguez. Technical director was Corey Schreppel. Christina Lopez pulls the secret levers of our web and social media. Thanks also to Nate Toby and to everyone who helped us this season, like Diana Floten, Chip Walton, Jen Keevy, Angie Andreessen, Brandon Santos, Steve Griffith, Christy Healy, Jeff Nilica, Molly Bloom, Mike Resler, Babette Applin, and also Marina Olson and everyone at Health Partners. And also everyone I've forgotten to mention. Our theme song is called Pagliacci. It was written and performed by our good friend, Rhett Miller. Much more about Rhett is at his website, rhettmiller.com. You can also catch him when he comes to your town to play Rocky Roll music with himself or the old 97s. That's his band. Go see them in order to have fun. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The 8255 spells talk. The crisis text line is available in the United States. Just text 741-741 and a trained human crisis counselor will text you back. It's confidential, secure, free. They are there to get you to a safe, calm place. 
The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illness. MakeItOK.org has information to check out for yourself or for someone else. Starting a conversation on a topic like this, it can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say, what not to say, stories of hope from people who've been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at MakeItOK.org. We're on Twitter at THW of D, or just search for us up in the little thing there. Search for Hilarious World of Depression. You'll find us. You can write to us at THWOD, THWAD, at AmericanPublicMedia.org. And we're on the World Wide Web with a website, HilariousWorld.org. All previous episodes live there. Hey, write a review for us if you could at Apple Podcasts and subscribe and rate us with five stars. The more buttons you push, the better it is for us to reach more people, which is what we want to do. And that's it for season two, y'all. 20 ding-dang episodes. Huge season two, wonderful season two. Here is the plan of what comes next. We're taping a live show in Minneapolis on February 8th. Tickets sold out before we could even publicize this thing. Mike Brown will be there and the newly formed Hilarious World of Depression Orchestra. We'll be bringing that live show to you, our pod listeners, in the next few weeks. We'll have some little placebo episodes to offer down the road. We'll do some Facebook Live. We'll explore some other platforms. Then we'll come storming back with season three later on. I don't know when. I really have to rest. So does Chrissy. So does everyone. But we'll be back soon enough. I'm John Moe. Bye now.